Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bible and open to John chapter 3, the Gospel of John chapter 3. That's where we'll be this morning. If you're a guest with us today, whether it's your first time on our campus or whether you've been hanging out for a while, but you'd like to get more information about us as a church, you'd like to meet some of our leadership, hear our vision, just kind of see what we're all about. It's a purely an introduction. We're going to take about 50 minutes this afternoon at 1230, immediately following our next service. And in room 120, we'll host a light lunch. It's an event called Explore Life Point. We would love to invite you to come today so that we can just spend a few moments with you. You can meet us and take some time with us. If you can come, uh, you you can just show up or you can let us know uh, so we can make sure we have enough food for everybody. Otherwise, leadership doesn't get to eat. That's kind of how we roll. Uh, But we would love to have you with us. We won't take a lot of your time. We do want to answer any questions that you may have about us. That'll be at 1230 today in room 120. Okay, I'm in a series entitled Love, Good News to Believe in Jesus and Receive Eternal Life. And this study is, or this series is a study in the Gospel of John. And today we come to the third chapter of the Gospel of John. And I want us to look at what it means to be born from above. Born from above. Now, before we go to the text, I'm going to ask you to consider a question. And I want to ask you this question. What excuse have you offered to God lately? What excuse have you offered to God? Maybe about a situation or a circumstance. Maybe it was about something you knew that you were supposed to do that you hadn't done. And, and you've, you've talked to God about that. Maybe it's about something you've done and you keep doing, you can't seem to stop doing, but you know you shouldn't be doing. And you in your own heart have been offering to God an excuse. You see, friends, when we live in unbelief, we respond to God with excuses, what I'm going to call today objections, in order to justify our unbelief and to rationalize our own way or our own sin. But when we believe in Jesus, we deny these objections that we might receive what only he can give, eternal life, salvation. And so I want you to understand this morning, this is the big idea I want you to walk away with today. It's simply this, that Christians are born from above by believing in Jesus as God's salvation. Christians are born from above by believing in Jesus as God's salvation. Unbelief creates these objections in our heart and in our mind, and they cause us to deny, they cause us to dismiss or to disregard Jesus. But what Jesus does is what we'll see this morning is that he addresses all of our excuses, all of our objections that are rooted in unbelief with one ultimate response. And he always confronts our objections with spiritual truths that we might believe the truth who is him and receive eternal life. So this morning, I want you to see from this story 
In John 3, the story of Nicodemus, I want you to see the three objections that Nicodemus raises. And I believe they're the same objections that we raise, that we raise. Um, okay, let's move on. That's a total distraction. There are three objections that we raise to the Lord as well. Go with me to the first three verses of John 3, and let's begin there this morning. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here's the first objection I want you to see this morning that Nicodemus raises. When we live in unbelief, we object to God's salvation based on a knowledge that denies his truth. We raise the first objection of unbelief to God's salvation based upon a knowledge that denies his truth. Now, John introduces this man, Nicodemus, in three ways that are important for us to understand. First of all, he says he's a Pharisee. And Nicodemus, that means that he was a very learned man, highly educated, and held a great knowledge of the Scriptures, which would have been what we consider the Old Testament, and also held a high responsibility for the Jewish people. Pharisees were some of the leading teachers of that day. They had mastered the text, and they regularly explained the text to the Jewish people. But he also tells us that he was a ruler of the Jews. And so Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee, prominent among the Jewish people, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was a council of Pharisees that held authority for the Jewish people. So the only people in higher positions of power than the Sanhedrin court were the Roman rulers themselves. And the Romans allowed the Sanhedrin to basically conduct business and life among the Jews however they wished according to their law as long as it didn't cause any disturbance among the Roman Empire. And so we see this, this conflict arise from the Sanhedrin and Jesus. And Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin. But it also tells us something interesting in what we hear Nicodemus say. For here's what he said. He said, Rabbi, which is an acknowledgement in and of itself to address him in this way. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so from these words, we understand that he was a man who believed that Jesus had come from God. As a matter of fact, the pronoun he uses, we, is a plural pronoun. So we could very likely ascertain that he spoke as a general consensus for all of the Sanhedrin. In other words, we recognize that what you are is someone who's come from God. And he's representing an opinion of more than just himself. We also see that John says he came to Jesus at night. And while I think that's important, we have to be careful not to put too much prominence in that. It could be that he came to Jesus under the cover of night because he didn't want anyone else to know that he was coming to Jesus. And that's very likely true. But it doesn't mean that in some way he was hiding or any of that nature. 
it also tells us that it could have been it was just the most convenient time of day to get to Jesus because of his own demand and work schedule and because of the demand of people that were around Jesus all day. Either way, here's what his words do tell us, that his statements offer a high compliment to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't say thank you, does he? What does he say? Truly, truly. He responds to him. Here's what we understand. The highest of compliment out of unbelief serves still as a divine insult to Jesus, who is God. You see, he saw Jesus as highly gifted. He was an individual who had gifts that were definitively from God. He was even anointed from God. It's like, man, God was all over this person and you could tell him. But here's what he didn't say. He didn't say, we believe you are God. You see, that's a big leap from where Nicodemus stood. Their knowledge of God that was formed through the study of the scriptures limited their understanding of his work in salvation and led them to deny the truth that Jesus was come from God as God. You see, Jesus' response explains why it is that Nicodemus denied God's truth. And that's where we look when Jesus says, truly, truly, in the scriptures, in our understanding, we know that Jesus is about to say something that's very instructive, but also illuminating for us. Nicodemus, nor the Sanhedrin, nor the Pharisees, nor the Jewish people in mass saw Jesus as God. Because they had not, Jesus says, been born from above in order to discern God's work. Instead, Nicodemus and others chose to explain Jesus out of their own unbelief. They could explain him from their knowledge about God. And it was that knowledge that led them to deny the truth of God's kingdom that was revealed in Jesus. In order to see God's kingdom work, in order to have a knowledge of God at work, friends, we must have God's life within us. You see, the most difficult And challenging aspect of this narrative and this dialogue today is that so much of Nicodemus is true of us. And so much of what Nicodemus had learned and knew and had taught many times is good and right. You are come from God. But Nicodemus' unbelief that raises this first objection was all he would allow Jesus to be And that's the greatest danger for you and I today. To have such a familiarity with Christianity that we actually allow it to make Jesus something less than what he really is. God. God. One must be born from above to see the truth of God's kingdom work that is revealed in Jesus. This first objection that unbelief raises against God, it just simply doesn't accept God's work because it doesn't fit into that knowledge about God that is based on what is seen. And Nicodemus' statement wasn't hard to believe. I mean, in other words, it was harder for him to deny what he actually said because of what he had seen. 
When you've seen Jesus perform miracle after miracle, when it's come out that he's the one that turned the water to wine, that he is the one that rent the temple, that other miracles had likely taken place that we're not privy to in the text because John didn't choose to reveal them to us, but because of the way he speaks, we know more than likely they had taken place. In other words, Nicodemus says, look, man, you've done all of these great signs, that, that seems like a great statement and compliment, but the fact of the matter is he denied more than he acknowledged. And that's what we've got to understand. You see, believing that Jesus is God's son demanded a faith that was beyond the simple limitations of their knowledge, and this was more than they could do without faith. Jesus says that one must be born from above in order to see God's work that comes from above. God's kingdom work in this world, friends, demands that we believe more than just what we know from what we can see because it reveals God's eternal truths to us. Unbelief objects to God's work by denying his truth based on the knowledge about God, but that is absent of faith in God. And that's where unbelief begins to arise in our heart and make objections to God. Nicodemus' objection is a familiar argument about Jesus that's come throughout the ages in many different ways. Many people have paid Jesus the compliment that becomes a divine insult by saying he's a good man. Many people have paid Jesus a high compliment that is a divine insult by saying he's a great teacher. Many people have paid to Jesus religions throughout human history that have paid him the highest compliment that is nothing other than divine insult when they have said he is a prophet come from God. But all of those statements, friends, are statements that can be validated based off historical knowledge of what is seen. None of them demand faith. And that's exactly what Nicodemus has done here for us is he has made an obvious statement that is a high compliment but serves as a divine insult. And Jesus says to him, one must be born from above. That's what born again means in the literal rendition of the text. And they must be born from above in order to see God's work that comes down from above. His kingdom work demands that we believe more than just what we know from what we've seen because it reveals God's truth. You see, all of these things were based on a knowledge of what was seen, but they failed to believe and they denied the truth of him being the one in which they must receive eternal life. Friends, believing the right information does not equal salvation. Christianity is not simply an intellectual assent or conclusion. It involves that, but it's more than that. Salvation only comes from God. And that's where Jesus must start with Nicodemus. Because he was so deep in his religious tradition. And he was so, shall we say, anchored in his convictions because of his religious practice and and experience and study and knowledge but it was that very knowledge 
that allowed him to dismiss the revelation of God. And Jesus says, listen, true salvation only comes from God. God births new life in salvation in order that we might see his kingdom work on earth and believe in him. Jesus tells Nicodemus that entrance into the kingdom, which this, this reference to the kingdom was, it, it was the representative hope of the Jewish people. When you read the gospel of Matthew, who is written to a Jewish people from a Jewish perspective, then when you read that, you see that the announcement of salvation in Jesus' arrival is what? The kingdom of God is here. And so the idea of the kingdom of God was the prevailing ideology that was, that was assigned upon what we would consider salvation today. And this was the Jewish hope. And Jesus says that entrance into the kingdom is not because you were a Jew or because you've studied and believed the right set of facts, but rather because it comes from God. Peter praises God for this new birth in his writing when he writes the doxology in 1 Peter 1.3. And he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we see that what Jesus is teaching, his disciples are coming to understand. Only God births true life within that we cannot produce on our own. And born from above is the sovereign work of God into life in relationship with God. Why is this so important to us? Because any inkling of unbelief that remains within us always raises the same objections. We live in unbelief and we deny God's kingdom work every time we regard Jesus as something less than God, no matter how high the compliment may be. When we fail to praise Jesus for who he is, when we fail to honor him as only worthy of our worship, when we fail to obey his commands. Every time we deny that Jesus is Lord, we live out of unbelief towards God's kingdom work in our, in our hearts and lives and in the world. And unbelief, friends, objects to deny God's real revealed truth in Jesus Christ every time we see his word, but we fail to trust in him. The second objection Continues in verse 4 of John 3. Let me read that for us. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? That's an honest question, right? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The second objection that unbelief raises in our life is when pragmatism values man's ability so that we can disregard God's work or God's ability. That's what we see with Nicodemus. Nicodemus raises an honest question from an understandable perspective to us. And when Jesus speaks of a second birth, it seemed like an absolute impossibility 
because of his unbelief that led him to view everything from a human perspective. And this is what Jesus will call the flesh when he responds to him in the next verse. Unbelief objected to God's work because he couldn't comprehend it because his understanding, his, his, his practice was confined to what was physically possible. You see, God's work is always disregarded in our life when we only see things from the unbelief of our flesh. When we limit God to the physical realm. Nicodemus's question reveals this lens of pragmatism that I call it, through which unbelief views God's work. Here's what pragmatism does. Pragmatism values the practical or what is possible in the physical realm so highly that it disregards anything that cannot be defined by or draw meaning from the physical realm. What it does is that it values what is immediate over what is ultimate. It's the work of the flesh holding a higher value in our hearts and lives than the work of the spirit. And you see, pragmatism as a guiding understanding or philosophy, it, it says to us that, 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 that the, the let me try to get, make sure I get this right. That the means, excuse me, it justifies the means by the end. I want to make sure I get the order of that right because that's important. In other words, it allows us to enter into a justifiable situational ethics that says to God, I've got this, I'll see you on the other side. I'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death by myself and see you when I come out the other side. Instead of, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Pragmatism always says this, this works, so it must be right. This works, so it must be okay. I don't comprehend that, therefore it must not be or, or it cannot be. In other words, it just in the simplest of ways reduces things to deny the impossibility because of the lack of human possibility. The problem with pragmatism is that it values the seen over the unseen in all situations. And in God's kingdom, friends, what is seen is never great, as great as or greater than what is unseen. You see, Nicodemus reveals how it was that the religious leaders disregarded God's work in salvation because of their unbelief and cherished their own ability and leading to save. But it also shows us how we do the same thing today. Last week, in verses 23 to 25 of John 2, where it said that the people believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them and it tells us why. Because he knew the heart of man. Listen, friends. There is a belief that does not save. And it is a belief that is sourced out of pragmatism, out of the flesh, that says to us, as long as I can see, I will believe. Now, belief often begins with what we can see, but it never remains there. And I'll get to that in a moment. But I need you to understand something today. Christianity 
is not about intellectual comprehension alone. Any form of pragmatism where you purport all of your ability to God in whatever faculty it might be, the intellect, the emotion, the will, the volition, whatever the case may be, but you stop short of reaching the end of yourself and putting trust in Jesus, you've substituted a belief that does not save for the one who is salvation. And that's the real conflict that Nicodemus brings to us today. Unbelief loves pragmatism because everything remains under man's control by disregarding God. Jesus responds that impossibility of what he has said is exactly the point of what he is saying. So in other words, he says, Nicodemus, yes, that's what I'm telling you. What you are looking at me smiling and asking questions that you think are completely inconceivable, I'm telling you that's exactly the point of what I'm telling you. One must be born of water and spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Flesh can only give birth to flesh, but spiritual birth comes only by the spirit. You see, God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that demands spiritual birth by his Holy Spirit. And this term for one must be born of water and the Spirit. It's debated often as to whether water is a reference to the physical world where you have to be born physically as, as we have been or whether it's a reference to baptism. So in other words, the work of religion which uh, the Pharisee, the Sadducee, Nicodemus would have represented. And the, the real point of this is that Whichever one those represents, or whether it represents both, as I think it adequately does, is not the main issue here because neither of those is sufficient. You can't be born into Christianity, neither by your grandparents, your parents, your brother, your sister, your best friend, or, well, I don't guess that would be the born category, would it? But you understand what I'm saying. It's not a natural something we attain to. And you cannot be born again by the religious work, no matter how, how acutely responsible and attentive you are to those things. But one must be born of the water and the Spirit. So he's saying in this, you are a Jew, good. Then you ought to know most of all that you cannot be saved just because of your heritage or your lineage. You are a Pharisee and a Sanhedrin, good. Then you should know that you cannot be saved simply because you've done all the right religious things. Jesus said, you must be born from above of the Spirit of God that is living. Jesus explains, and he strengthens this teaching with this, this comment on the wind. He said, don't, don't be surprised by I tell, because I tell you, you must be born by the Spirit. And he says, the wind blows. You know why he uses this analogy? Because in the Greek and the Hebrew alike, the word for wind and the word for spirit are the same word. That's a very... Accurate analogy for us, isn't it? You know that the wind exists unless you live here in July and August when it doesn't seem to blow at all and the humidity just sits, right? But beyond that, you know the wind exists. Why? Because you feel it blowing across you, because you see it in the trees. But you don't know where it came from. Neither do the weathermen, as we know. They don't know if it's coming or going. And we don't know where it's headed but we know it's here. And that's what he says. 
about the Spirit of God. Man cannot produce it because man does not understand it. Friends, hear me. Salvation is not just a better life for you. Salvation is not a second chance. It's not a do-over of this life. It's not a fresh start. But it is a completely different life that is birthed when the Spirit of God comes to life in you because you've believed in Jesus Christ. Salvation is new life birthed from God by His Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus. One can never receive new birth from God as long as they disregard His work from unbelief. Jesus was the first person that was born of the Spirit when the Holy Spirit came to the Virgin Mary and prophesied and later, excuse me, when the angel came and told her that the Spirit would come up on her and she would become pregnant with Jesus. And that's what happened. He was the first that was born of the Spirit and from him and only through him are any others born of the Spirit. Listen, salvation is the sovereign work of God. Of God, And as long as you hold to the conviction or the belief that something you've done, something you might be able to do, or something you're trying very hard, your best with all of your life to accomplish, will do. As long as you hold to that, you will always deny, dismiss, and disregard what God is saying to you by His Spirit. Born from above is the unique and exclusive sovereign work of God through Jesus Christ. Unbelief objects to disregard God's work every time that pragmatism rules in our hearts and rules in our minds where we want to choose what we can do or what we can accomplish instead of what God leads in and the way in which God wants to work. The third objection that we see raised here today is found in verses 9 through 11. Let me read that for us. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you not the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Here's the third objection, friends. Tradition dismisses the glory of God's revelation. What do I mean by tradition? I mean, it's that which we've become so comfortable with and has become so, in ways, convenient for our life that we're able to dismiss anything else that God wants to do. Honestly, this conversation dumbfounded Nicodemus. And it should have, because it's mind-blowing. But you can sense the level of frustration with this conversation. And that level of frustration is revealing the depth of his un. Belief. You see, Jesus' response is showing the gravity of his unbelief, how his unbelief is the very thing that's holding him away from receiving what he says he most wants from God. He's a key leader of the people, and he doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus obviously infers in that, how are the people going to understand if the leaders who are responsible to teach them don't understand? They were so accustomed to, they were so comfortable with their religious tradition that they couldn't accept God's work and they dismissed his revelation in Jesus. You see, that's what unbelief does, friends. It not only blinds us, but it deceives us when it leads one to dismiss God's revelation in preference for tradition. 
This is the gospel, but this is tradition. This is the way God saves, but this is the way that we prefer because we know it, we're comfortable with it, and we, it is convenient to us. And to deny that would be something completely different that we're not sure that we're comfortable with yet. And what Jesus does is he points directly to the reason for his lack of understanding. You see, Nicodemus' unbelief was not based on a lack of full knowledge. It was based on a denial of it, a dismissal of what that knowledge meant. He said, we know that you have performed signs that have come from God. And why is a sign present in the New Testament? A sign is a what? It's a miracle that has a purpose. And that purpose is that the work would point beyond the worker to the one who has come through the worker. And that's why the miracles of Jesus weren't just to wow the crowd, but were lead them to worship him as God. That's why miracles later in the New Testament that were performed by his apostles could also not point to the worker himself, but to the one who was come. And so Jesus is God who has come. But they wouldn't accept this because they dismissed this revelation out of the deception of their unbelief. And Nicodemus had dismissed what had been revealed and what was testified to him because it didn't fit into his worldview or his doctrinal framework. In other words, what Nicodemus had done is he had taken the entire New Te- or Old Testament, which were his scriptures of that day, and he had managed to interpret Jesus right out of it. He had redefined what the Messiah meant. And we know what the Messiah meant in that day. The Messiah meant a bad warrior dude that would ride in with a sword that the Roman Empire could not control. And he would conquer and he would rule right here, right now. Why? Because that was their most immediate concern and crisis. Fix it right now and we'll believe that you're God. And Jesus tells him, you wouldn't believe even if I did fix it. Because you would find another reason to not believe. The Jews had become so preoccupied with the world that they anticipated an immediate worldly savior. And friends, we do the same thing every time in our relationship with God when we allow the immediacy of some crisis or situation that we've gotten ourselves into to define all that we'll hear from God about. That might be why you're here this morning. You've run to God because of some situation or circumstance or things that have arisen. You're worried about what's going to happen today and tomorrow or Tuesday. And everything about God is being driven by that concern, by that anxiety and that care. And it's causing you to be blinded to what God wants to do in your life. And you can't hear from God. You won't hear from God is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus because you demand God answer this first before he addresses anything else. Friends, what I'm saying to you today is not what you're putting before God is unimportant. It's just not ultimate. But you're making it ultimate. And you're doing that because unbelief is objecting to what God wants to do in your heart. Unbelief leads us to to, to miss the glory of God's work. But because we dismiss the messenger or we dismiss the means through which God has chosen to act for us. He tells Nicodemus, we have sent testimony after testimony to you. You have memorized, you have meditated, and you have studied these testimonies all of your life. And yet you've missed me. 
And let us not be heavy-handed with Nicodemus. Let us not look and go, man, what an idiot he was. Thank goodness I'm not Nicodemus, right? No, actually, if we're going to look at this to receive what God has for us, we need to look fully into Nicodemus and understand how we're doing the same things that he did in our own heart and life. How we're offering objections and excuses to God in our own life because we prefer to live out of our unbelief than our belief. And how we become deceived in that very way. Unbelief objects to believing in God's revealed glory through Jesus Christ. Every time we demand God work in the ways that we understand, the ways that we comprehend, the things that we want to do to obey. God, I'll obey you, but here's how it's going to happen. Right? Instead of looking to where the testimony of God leads. Jesus points to the real problem. Look at verse 12. Here comes the real problem. With Nicodemus and with us, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus tells Nicodemus he doesn't accept the truth about salvation, which he calls heavenly things, because he won't believe the earthly things that testify from God that are right before him. Unbelief, friends, denies God's work because it doesn't like the way God reveals his work. Unbelief demands God do for us in the way we want him to work or will not accept it as if we know better than God. One of the reasons we live in disbelief so often is because we just simply neglect praising and honoring God through thanksgiving. And when we dismiss praise and thanksgiving in our heart, we begin to operate more out of unbelief than faith. And we miss God. Why? Because we think we are the one to get credit for the things that are happening in our life. Even the breaths that we draw and everything that stems from that. Unbelief's demand is impossible to satisfy because it doesn't want to believe. And that's the nature of sin in our heart. Even though Nicodemus claimed to believe and to hope in God, to him, God existed only for the here and now. His thinking was limited to what he could see. His understanding was confined by what he could comprehend. And his comprehension favored what he could accomplish over what God wanted to reveal to him. And that's the tension that Jesus identifies with him. And that's the tension that Jesus holds in every soul and heart and life today. Because the darkness of unbelief gets exposed by Jesus. And when his light illumines our unbelief, there is a tension and unbelief unleashes a litany of objections, a litany of excuses to rationalize and to justify. I mean, every warning, every siren, every light in our mind and heart is going off going, no, no, no. But the light of Christ is bearing testimony within us that says, yes. And the question that arises at the end of verse 12 with Nicodemus is the same scenario that arises with each one of us when we've yet to place our faith in Jesus. But hear me, Christian, because I don't want you to think you get a get-out-of-this-sermon-free card because you've already prayed to receive Christ. It happens every day and every moment that the light of God's glory and truth shines upon the dark areas of our heart that we're hiding from Him. Friends, unbelief cannot be corrected. 
Unbelief has no prescription. It must be repented of. Put away. Turn away from it. And turn to Jesus to believe. Saving belief centers in the heavenly things of God's kingdom work that have come through Jesus Christ. That's what he tells us. Look at verse 13 and 15 as we see the one response to every objection that unbelief makes against God. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus points clearly to himself, and he says that he is the Savior who has come from God to bring new life. Nicodemus would have understood this reference completely from Numbers chapter 21, where the story of Moses, under the leadership of God, told him to raise the serpent up, and anyone who would look at the serpent raised on the stick would not die because of the bite of the serpent in the desert. Nicodemus would have, and I believe, I believe at this moment, genuinely in Nicodemus's heart, I believe he moved from unbelief to belief. There's a couple of evidences we have of that. Later, he will be the one that, that defends Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin and says, hey, there's no need to move too quickly on this. If he's not from God, that'll be revealed. But also, when Jesus is crucified, Nicodemus is one that prepares his body for burial with the spices. Friends, the greatest confirmation of our love for God and, and belief in him alone is when we give our lives to serve him out of love. And that's what Nicodemus did in the preparation of his body for death. Otherwise, he could have just dismissed him. But Jesus says this, just as the serpent was raised, so the Son of Man will be raised up. Now for Nicodemus, Jesus was speaking into the future because he had not been crucified. For you and I, we had the full knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was crucified. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And he ascended into heaven where today he sits next to the Father and rules and reigns in heavenly things. The question I bring to you today is this. What objection, what excuse are you raising in your heart, in your mind, or in your life that justifies and rationalizes that you don't have to behold Jesus, you don't have to trust him, that you don't have to obey him, or maybe in this area or that area, he's not completely worthy of praise and honor. And I want to turn your eyes this morning to see Christ crucified for you, that you might believe and receive from him new birth from above. Let's pray.